Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today, yeah. Survived in quarantine? Every day. (laughs) How are you? Doing good. I finished playing Jedi Fallen Order. Right. Uh, That was fun and good. And now I have a gaping hole in my life where Jedi once were, <laughs> once were. Well. Do you think tonight's movie will fill that gaping hole? No. No? No. I'm, I'm sorry to say off the, just off the top here, but no. Tonight's movie is called Man Beast. It's from 1956 and directed by Jerry Warren. And um, I've never heard of Jerry Warren. Well, we are about to enter... The wide, wild, weird world of Jerry Warren. <laughs> um, is he someone who I should know? He's someone... Should is a strong word in that <laughs> sentence. Um, he's someone who you're going to know. Well, yes, because you were about to tell me about him. Yes. So, Jerry Warren is a guy who makes Ed Wood and Roger Corman look high class. Ooh. Um, Ooh. I believe it was Roger Ebert who once said that Jerry Warren, if not the worst director of all time, was certainly the laziest. We're setting Man Beast up to be a real hit. It I so I It might be one of the movies he put the most effort into of his filmography. Okay. So Jerry Warren was born in 1925 in California, and like a lot of people who grow up in L.A., he wanted to get into show business. Sure. So after high school, he tried making it by leading a band called Jerry Warren and the Pets. And the Pets. Yeah, it didn't go well. I'm just imagining them in, like, pet outfits, and then linking that image to this movie of man beast is something yeah i think i think your your imagination's doing some heavy lifting there but the music career didn't go anywhere however jerry's skills as a dancer uh <laughs> got him some work as a background dancer in some hollywood films in the late 1940s um, okay. movies like anchors away uh for instance his time as an extra uh, ended up teaching him a lesson that he, he really took to heart, which is that the real power and money in Hollywood was in being a producer. So Jerry set out to produce his own movie. Ambition. It took him almost 10 years to scrounge together the $30,000 that he would use to set up his own production company, Associated Producers Incorporated, API, and finance his first feature, which is this movie. Okay. So this movie was made on basically... No money. $30,000 minus the cost of registering a company. And he got that money over that decade 
through a long series of scams and cons that I couldn't find much concrete details about, unfortunately. That's the case with scams. Yeah. um, At one point, it was mentioned in some of my research that he, like, scammed a police department out of money. And I really want to hear the story behind that, but I could find, like, no details. Jerry Acab Warren. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so he's got $30,000, and he's got... His new company, which is called Associated Producers Incorporated, even though it's just him. That's where the Associated comes from, Ben. Right. So by the mid-1950s, it's pretty clear that, like, monster movies are the go-to genre for, like, an indie producer looking to make a quick profit. And Warren felt that the natural subject matter for his first film would be the Yeti, due to the attention and publicity that the Abominable Snowman was receiving at the time. Naturally. Yeah, so we've seen a couple of Yeti movies at this point. Yeah, you know, I do have to hand it to Jerry here, because he's not ripping off, you know, cat people from ten years prior. He's not ripping off, like, Beast from the Ocean, Mm -hmm. that we've already seen, like, many films about. We've only seen two Yeti films. The first came in 1954, The Snow Creature, from William Lee Wilder. I wish I could say no relation to Billy Wilder, but there is in fact. (laughs) Um, That's episode 173, if people want to take a listen. It is ranked at number 175 on the list. The lowest ranking movie on the list, if I'm not mistaken. You are mistaken. Oh, is it still second lowest it's to Son of Ngagi? It's second lowest okay. to Son of Ngagi at 176. Oh, boy. Um, and then the second Yeti movie comes from Japan. Uh, it's Ishiro Honda's Ju Jin Yuki Otoko from 1955. That's episode 180, if you want to take a listen. And that's ranked number 55. Pretty big so, spread there. <laughs> yep. So I think we can at least guess that Man Beast if it is ranked, will fall somewhere between 55 and 175. Mm -hmm. Um, I will give Jerry a little more credit because the American re-edit of Jujin Yukio Toko, Half Human, uh, wouldn't be released for another two years. So he's really only... He's not even ripping off another movie. He's just ripping off the headlines, which is a tried-and-true practice that Hollywood still does today. Right, exactly. Yeah, he's jumping on the Yeti bandwagon in terms of the, like hype, but there haven't actually been a lot of Yeti movies yet. To hear more about that hype, you can listen to our episode on the Snow Creature, 173. Um, Most recently, uh, in 1954, the Daily Mail sponsored an expedition to Mount Everest to find the Yeti. Um, That has been the most recent, like, in the news. Yeah. So, to produce his Yeti movie... Warren purchased the rights to some mountain climbing stock footage from allied artists uh, that originated from an old monogram picture from the 40s. Oh, and I'm sure it was kept in, like, pristine conditions. Yeah. Um, The footage depicts some people, like... I, I, I got conflicting sources on, like, where this footage is originally from. One source put it as being from, like some people trekking through some mountains in Mexico, and another had it as people trekking through mountains in the Alps. Um, Those are two very different climates. Well, when you're up in, like, the high altitudes, maybe they're a bit more similar. What neither really looks like is the Himalayas. Sure. 
Additionally, Warren bought an albino gorilla suit from Crash Corrigan uh, <laughs> that had been originally made to be used for a PRC film called White Pongo in 1945. And then Warren chopped the nose off to make it go from being a gorilla to a yeti. I mean, to be fair, no one has actually seen a Yeti, so <laughs> he might actually be the most accurate we've seen. <laughs> Poor Crash Corrigan out here just, like, peddling these suits p- to pay for his retirement. Did he get paid, like, was he paid to be an actor in this as well? No. No? No, he was so just paid just for the suit. So they just have some schmuck in the suit. Yeah, so Warren assembled his cast by using actors from the Pasadena Playhouse... So he just went to the, like the local theater group and like rounded hey, you up want to some be a people. Star, yeah, don't you? Um, and he cast to try and match the people in the stock footage. That makes sense. And then wrote the script around the stock footage. So he wrote as well. The screenplay is credited to B. Arthur Cassidy, but that's not a real person. That's Jerry Warren. Yeah. So he wrote the script around the stock footage and the suit and like what location shooting they could afford to do in Bronson Canyon. But the majority of the movie was shot at a rented studio space that also happened to be the same studio that Ed Wood rented for Bride of the Monster and Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, So the cheapest one. Right. Uh, There is a scene set at a Tibetan village, and they shot that by hopping a fence onto the Paramount lot and shooting at a Mongolian village set that Paramount had up for like an A picture they were doing um, like, illegally over the weekend when no one was looking. <laughs> uh, the film's cinematographer has no credits before this. Shocker. Um, the film's associate producer was also the film's art director, Ralph Brook. His credits before this are all, like, acting credits on westerns. So he has been on a set before. Yeah. During... Production of the film, uh, Warren met a young woman named Brianne Murphy, who he hired as a production assistant. Uh, She would end up doing the casting, makeup, wardrobe, script supervising, uh, loading the film, pulling focus, and also performing as the Yeti. Oh, she's the poor schmuck. Uh, Uh, To be fair, Jack, or or, I guess Jane of all trades in this case, um... That's what a production assistant is supposed to do. Sure. The jobs that you just need a warm body to do right now. Yep. Uh, she was a 23-year-old daughter of American parents who was raised in Britain, but then returned to the U.S. at the advent of World War II. She got into show business by crashing the Ringley Brothers and P.T. Barnum Circus at Madison Square Garden by performing there as a clown, despite not working for them. <laughs> she just showed up. Uh, One too many clowns came out of that clown car. uh, That got her hired at that circus. Um, Before meeting Warren, she had worked as a still photographer, a uh, trick rodeo rider, and uh, a production assistant on a few other productions. She would go on to become Warren's regular production manager, his regular second unit camera operator, and from 1956 to 1959, his wife. I was going to say, she sounds fucking dope. Um, After leaving Warren in 1959, she would marry Ralph Brooke, uh, this film's associate producer. Oh, no. Um, And then after divorcing him, she would go on to become the first female cinematographer to get her union card. Yeah, girl. Uh, Then she was the first female cinematographer to work on a major studio film. 
Nice. Uh, she was nominated for four Emmys for cinematography and won an Academy Award for Special Achievements in 1982. She's dope. I like her. Top billing in the movie's credits and posters and marketing is for actor Rock Madison playing the role of Lon Ranyan. Is Rock Hudson a figure in Hollywood yet? So there's no character in the movie named Lon Ranyan. What? And there's also no such person as Rock Madison. Uh, <laughs> what? He was a complete fiction invented by Warren and Murphy uh, by taking the names of the actors Rock Hudson and Guy Madison and putting them together in order to make it seem to audiences like the movie had a movie star in it and also to make it seem like the movie had a bigger cast than it really did. Oh my god. So this would be like if you were making a movie today and you were like starring Brad Clooney <laughs> in an attempt to just like make people go like, yeah, that's a movie star. Wow, how'd they get Brad Clooney in this? I have never heard of an example of transmorphers. In, like, this, down in this manner. <laughs> so, Man Beast was released in April of 1956. Uh, it was a B-movie, uh, so it didn't make a lot of money, uh, but it did make enough to turn a profit. Yeah, because they spent, like, two bucks on it. Right. Warren and Murphy got married in Las Vegas after the release of the movie, presumably on the, like... Profit of the Yeah. <laughs> presumably used the, like, weekend box office to fund their honeymoon, which was also in Las Vegas. And it was during that honeymoon that Murphy suggested that for their next project, they make two movies for the same 30000 budget, so 15 for each movie, and then sell them as both halves of a double bill so that they could make more profit. Uh, so Warren on that honeymoon wrote the scripts for their next two movies, uh, The Incredible Petrified World and Teenage Zombies. Fascinating. Uh, after divorcing Murphy, uh, Warren would go through a big stretch in the 1960s of doing the Godzilla King of the Monsters thing. So instead of making movies from scratch, he purchased Mexican films, cut out all the dialogue scenes, then would hire like John Carradine to come in and like shoot for a day in his garage a bunch of new dialogue scenes explaining the plot, and then edit those into the movie and put it out under a different title. And that was kind of his modus operandi through most of the 1960s. He finally made a completely original film again in the late 1960s, um, 1966 to be precise. That film was called The Wild World of Batwoman. Uh, and it was maybe intended to cash in on something that might have been popular in 1966. Yes. Um, a lawsuit later, yeah. a few scenes were added to the movie and the film was retitled She Was a Hippie Vampire. Oh, my God. Uh, after Wild World of Batwoman, Warren didn't really make another film until 1981 when he made Frankenstein Island, which was his final film. Wait, is the island Frankenstein? Or is it an island of Frankensteins? I don't know. Was he the doctor? <laughs> but who was Bone? There's, however, a quote from Jerry Warren that sort of sums up his filmmaking philosophy that I would like to recite to you now. Please. He said in a 1988 interview, I was in the business to make money. I never ever tried in any way to compete or to make something worthwhile. I only did enough to get by so theaters would buy it, so it would play, and so I'd get a few dollars. It's not very fair to the public, I guess, but that was my attitude. You don't have to go all out and make a really good picture to make money. 
I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> so, this is the first film of the career of Jerry Warren and the oeuvre of API. Um, it's in the public domain. Shocker. Uh, it's available on DVD from VCI Entertainment as part of Volume 1 of their Jerry Warren collection. There's no other volumes, is there? No, there are. Um, so yeah, that's Man Beast. Great. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, Ben has told you how to access it. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Man Beast from 1956, directed by Jerry Warren. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Man Beast from 1956, directed, produced, and written by Jerry Warren. Sarah? Thoughts? Pretty okay. Yeah, honestly, for like what it is. Yeah, I was expecting something pretty low. Mm-hmm. You know, that bar was low. Yes. And it met the bar. Yes. This was all right. For what it is. Yeah. Fine way to spend just over an hour. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you run out of Queen's Gambit. <laughs> right. Um, so I think we can probably knock out the plot summary pretty quick, huh? Absolutely. The film opens with a narrator telling us as we survey the quote-unquote Himalayans, mm -hmm. explaining, this is where the Yeti live. Are they mythical or are they real? Are they man or beast? And, and then, then we enter the movie. And then the title card comes up saying man beast. So, so you know. There's the answer, I Right, guess. yeah. We, we know what uh, position this movie's taking. <laughs> so we have five main characters. First, we meet Connie and Trevor. Now, Connie Hayward and Trevor Hudson, who also is called HUD all the time. Yeah. Um, are presumed to be engaged in some manner. And Trevor is accompanying Connie as she chases after her brother. Um, because he is, I think they say diabetic, and is on some kind of experimental drug that, you know, it's actually going to fuck him up because of the altitude, and they didn't realize this until after he left for the Himalayans. Yeah, I I don't remember anything about the diabetes, but that it's not really important. But yeah, yeah the, the significant thing is he went on this Himalayan expedition and she's trying to catch up with him to be like, no, don't like you can't because this is an era before like cell phones and email and text messages and shit. So the only way to tell him is to follow him into the Himalayas and hope she gets to him in time. Yeah. Now they just keep missing his team by like a day or two and he... Connie's brother, Jim, has already headed up the mountain, so Connie's like, well, guess we gotta head up there too. Trevor isn't super stoked about this, um, mainly because the camp that they reach, 
uh, there's no more guides to take them, except for this one man named Steve Cameron. Uh, now, Steve kind of gives us some, like, exposition that, you know, Jim's already up there, guides are up there, they have a main guide named Varga, and Jim went up to try to find Yeti with a Dr. Erickson, kind of a world-renowned anthropologist. Steve agrees to help them get up the mountain and find the camp. Um, They eventually catch up with Dr. Erickson and the main guide, Varga. They catch up to them after a few days of travel, and they're like, great, cool, let's go back to the main camp where Jim will be. But when they get there, it's kind of been torn apart, and all the guides are missing, as well as Jim. They decide to try to find Jim to rescue him, wherever he might have gone. Um, In the midst of doing this search and rescue situation, Trevor finds a cave. Entering the cave, everyone heads in, and they find a gaggle of yetis. Mm. Now, the yeti go on the attack, on the offensive, when a gun is brandished and, um, I believe it's Steve, starts shooting. Um, Trevor dies and gets thrown off a cliff. Yeti heated. (laughs) And Steve, because he has a gun shooting around, he gets hit on the head by Varga. So, after this whole excursion... Steve is able to put together that, okay, there were no Yeti on that side, so it's Varga who hit me. So so now I'm very suspicious of Varga. Connie is very suspicious of Varga. Varga's also acting suspiciously because we see him um, having, like, nonverbal interactions with Yeti. Um, Dr. Erickson is only excited about the Yeti. He has not noticed any suspicious activity. Steve and Connie are like, okay, let's get the fuck out of here. But Dr. Erickson wants to explore the cave one last time, so he plans to go with Varga into the cave. Steve doesn't want Dr. Erickson to go alone, because, again, they don't trust Varga. So he heads with, and in the midst of traveling to the cave, um, we see that Varga motions to a yeti to cause an avalanche, which takes out Steve. With Erickson alone, Varga turns on him and says, Now you take orders from me now. Into the cave! Once in the cave, Varga explains to Dr. Erickson that he is a fifth-generation human yeti offspring, I guess. Um, He is clearly intelligent um, and has been devising this whole plan from the very beginning as he is working to help his fellow yeti become more human. Yeah, through through breeding. Through Through breeding. Through kidnapping humans to, to interbreed with. Specifically ladies. Yeah. This year alone, we've had five. Mm-hmm. Now, he hasn't killed Dr. Erickson yet because he's hoping for, you know, you're an anthropologist. Teach us some stuff to become more human. And Erickson is like, no. I want to be like you. <laughs> I want to walk like you. Talk like you. And Erickson is like, no, you're a monster. So he gets shot and killed. But now the time has come for Varga to go after Connie. Connie's been hiding out uh, since everyone left for the cave um, because, again, they don't trust anyone. But Varga finds her and tries to kidnap her to meet some nice Yeti boys. Mm -hmm. She screams for help, and we see Steve, who is not dead, coming in off screen. He shoots a Yeti and then 
gets into a punching match with Varga, punching him out and uh, grabbing Connie to get away. Varga pursues, and to catch up, he goes rock climbing. Yeah, because they're going down the mountain now. Yeah. Yeah. Steve and Connie are like, oh shit, he's coming. We'll stand here and watch as he sets up his, like, pythons and the rope and starts coming down. And I guess it's a good thing that they stand and watch because we see Varga climbing down the rope and the python loosening up. Yeah, he only, he only, um... Drove, Puts in one. Yeah, he only drove one piton into the rock, so there's not enough to support his weight. What did you say? Piton? I thought it was python. Now, now I don't know. Well, in any case, it does not hold. And he falls to his death. And Connie is traumatized, and Steve's like, don't worry, honey, we'll get off this mountain. And they continue off to civilization. The end. So, the thing about this movie is, like, most of the running time is taken up by journeying. The journey of Connie and uh, Hud and Steve, you know, to find Dr. Erickson. Then the journey of them with Dr. Erickson's team to get to camp. Then the journeys of going out into the snow to look for Jim. Then, you know, the journey to the cave, which happens twice. And then the journeys to get away from Varga. Um, Lots of like, you know, sort of Lord of the Rings-esque footage of people walking around mountains. Um, Lots of footage of people doing like mountain climbing up rock faces. The thing about all of this is all of the authentic mountain footage is taken from stock footage. It's all from clearly like one movie. Like some... I don't know, mountaineering documentary or something. Yeah, it definitely had the vibe of a documentary. And as well as, like, people, like, really heavily documenting their mountaineering. Mm -hmm. Because the most common problem of stock footage is that it feels too generic in order to be applicable here. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be, like, a long shot. Whereas the stock footage here was actually just really good stock footage there's a mix of like long shots of people climbing up mountains we get some really nice extreme close-ups of like boots with like picks on the bottom of their feet as they like climb up like the people making this stock footage were like really invested in covering every aspect of it that's why i think like it must come from like some sort of documentary on mountaineering where like there would have been a narrator's voice being like their boots are spiked for traction, and here's how you use a, a piton, and, and here's blah, 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 or blah, not, blah. how not to use a piton. Right. Python. Um, because it's all from the same source, there's, like, the same-ish people throughout. Yeah. And it's clear that the way the script was written was basically around creating scenarios where, you know, character A is with character B. Now character A and B are with C. Now C is with A in the stock footage. So... You know, the actors are dressed up in clothes that roughly match what the people in the stock footage are wearing. I don't know where this mountaineering documentary was shot. Everyone's dressed like they're in the European Alps, wearing, like, bicockets and jodhpurs. But, like, the kind of mountaineering they're doing definitely has, like, a more North America kind of climbing up Yosemite sort of feel to it. They also encounter some pretty deep snow, both in the stock footage 
and with our actual characters. Yeah, they probably shot this over, like, winter. Yeah. Basically, what has been done here is they took a mountaineering documentary and any shots in that documentary where you would have seen anyone's faces have been replaced by shots they got of the actors, like, at a park. You know, shot against the sky or something. I mean, yeah. there's more variety to it than that, but that's basically what's happening here. They did a really good job integrating the two. Yes, that's the thing that makes the movie really impressive versus a lot of stuff that we see that uses a lot of stock footage or that's in this budget range, is they really did a good job of, like, matching things and integrating them. But the majority of the movie is this stock footage. HUD discovers the Yeti cave, like, maybe 45%. A it's lot 40 of, minutes in. Yeah, a lot of the action in the movie happens in between these stretches of traveling that are stock footage. Um, and some of the movie's biggest flaws come from the fact that they're sort of married to this stock footage. For example, um, I think the ending is really unsatisfying because the heroes do nothing to defeat Varga. He just falls to his death. Like, it would be like, you know, if you were watching Westworld and, you know, Yul Brenner robot is, like, chasing after that guy and then the end of the movie was just the robot, like, slipping on a banana peel and hitting its head and breaking. And it's like, the reason why this is the ending to this movie is because we have this shot from the documentary of this guy's, like, piton failing and him falling. And so, like, we want to use it. I... I know you say that it's a, a weakness that mm. they're so married to this footage. I do think it might be more of a strength, except for the ending. Um, because any time that we do see our characters doing things, it's, like, tense. Or if they're in the cave, it's clearly just, like... Some, like, deep velvet curtains behind them. Yeah, yeah. When they're in the cave, they're just on, like, a blank set with a black velvet backdrop. And during the attack it's confusing, but part of that is because they are using a single suit to show that there are multiple Yeti. Yeah, they've only got the one Yeti costume, and so, like, there's a shot that's meant to be, like, a bunch of Yeti running by the camera that's actually just the same shot of one Yeti going by the camera, like, looped. Um, and, like, this same Yeti suit pops up in front of multiple people, but it's meant to be multiple Yeti versus multiple people. So we never actually, during the Yeti attack, get like a wide shot that would establish, you know, where everyone is in relation to another and how many Yeti there are. Because also it seems like they only have like maybe one or two like flare props for people to be holding. So everyone in this whole sequence is just like being shot by themselves and then like a reverse shot of a Yeti and then like onto another close up of someone else. It is disorienting, but it's so minimalist and it's shot so weirdly to get around their budget limitations that it kind of attains this sort of accidental stylishness. Um, <laughs> the kind of like unintentional artistry that you get from like those late third season episodes of Batman or Star Trek when they like started running out of budget and didn't make sets anymore. Yeah, and just use curtains. Yeah. I think the big thing for me with this movie overall is ultimately that I admire its chutzpah. <laughs> sure. Like, you know, we talked about the stock footage being well-matched. The script is pretty decent. 
Um, all, th- all things considered. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking like judging this thing within its own weight class. You know yeah. what I mean? The acting is about what you would expect if you grabbed a bunch of community theater actors for like a weekend shooting at a park in winter. Varga does really lean into it when he gets to reveal his backstory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, the actor is definitely having fun. Yeah, and the actors definitely all have a problem where they keep acting at the camera as if it was the audience in a theater production and the projecting to the back row. But, like, they're not... Film actors. They're not... Well, and, yeah, and they're not, like, so bad that, like, it... it it's weird. It's weird, yeah. Yeah, it's just, like, something you notice every now and then. hmm The quality level of this movie is what I would consider good for an amateur production. Which it was. Yeah, it feels akin to movies that I made for fun with my friends as a teen. Like, the whole, like, shooting in a park and pretending you're in, like, you know, a big forest or something. Or using stock footage or footage you stole from real movies to integrate with your footage to pretend like you have effects or budget or can do, like, big wide shots that you can't do. You know, the quality level maybe is something like someone would have put up on YouTube in, like, the early, more amateur days of YouTube, where someone would have been like, oh, what an impressive little production. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's quality level is akin to, like, a good fan film, I guess. Uh, or, like, you made this while in film school, mm-hmm. like, you're learning the craft. Yeah. Um, judged, judged as, like, a real movie that was released in real theaters, it is very bad. <laughs> very bad, but I do appreciate that there's clearly, like, I don't know if it's from Jerry, mm. the director, but someone somewhere in here is putting in effort to try to make this work. Yeah, it might have been from Jerry. Like, that quote I read where he was like, yeah, I never tried to do anything good came from, like, 1988 at the end of his career. Okay. When he might have been, like, super jaded after years of making crap. So, like, this is his first movie. So I can I can sort of see, like, the attempt to be like, well, we don't have a lot of money, but let's do what we can. Like, during the avalanche, you know, they've got the, like, obligatory stock footage of an avalanche. And then the intercut footage of, like, our characters is just, like... Two actors lying in the snow while, like, presumably Brienne is off screen just sort of chucking, like, handfuls of snow at them. Like... <laughs> yeah. It, there's It's bad, but it's charming bad. Yeah. Um, as far as, like, themes go, uh, it says its themes in the first five seconds. Mm-hmm. Is it man or beast? Man... And Beast? Yeah, like, the big twist of the movie is that Varga is a man. Beast? beast? Yeah. Um, um, and of course, bestiality is up in here. Oh yeah, like, compared to the other Yeti movies we've seen so far. This is the most explicit. It's way better than Snow Creature, despite almost certainly costing less. Yeah. Um, part of which might just be that, like, the Yeti suit here is way superior to the bullshit that was going on in Snow Creature. But Thanks, like, Crash Corrigan. Yeah. But, like, there are things that this movie does that are very similar to what was done in Snow Creature, and this movie does them better. 
And then, it, yeah, you know, talking about the bestiality, like, it's explicitly about the topics that Jujin Yuki Otoko kind of only, like, hinted at. Yeah. And it, it's more than just, like, oh, the Yeti, the missing link. Mm. Um, but more of, like, because of Varga's plan of, like, breeding half-Yeti human babies, um, it kind of recalls the, like, blood purity things that were in, like, Island of Lost Souls a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah, the uplifting in yeah, Island of Lost so, Souls. Yeah, so, like, Jerry here is pulling on horror themes that are, like, Baked into the genre, I guess yeah, you could say. Yeah, yeah. Because even thinking of, like, um, Murders in the Vue Morgue. And, you know, and hitting those taboo topics. Like, this movie comes right out and says, like, the assumed implicit thing in most monster movies. Which is, like... We're gonna get the girl to make some monster babies. Right. And this movie absolutely did not play at theaters that required a PCA stamp of approval. No. Like... <laughs> so, I mean, there are kind of admirable things going on here. Like, it's... Listen, it's not a good movie. No. But, yeah, for what it is, it's... I, you know, if if you had told me this was a fan film, if you had told me this was a student film, you know, if you told me that this was made by, like, a bunch of enthusiastic amateurs or teens or people, you know, like that, um, it's like, oh, okay, cool. I mean... Let's see, it's 1956, this was probably shot over, like, winter of 55. So, like, Jerry Warren would have been 30 when he made this movie. Like, I'm 30. And, like, this is amateur hour for sure, but, like, you know, if you gave me $30,000... In today's money. Right, which would be about $300,000. Actually, if you gave me $300,000, I could make a better movie than this. But if you gave me $30,000, and also I got that stock footage for free, because I do think actually where some of the budget for this went is I think they bought, you know, they, they bought the rights to that footage. Yeah. Right? Um, and it's good, like I said, it's good footage. So, like, yeah. a significant chunk must have gone towards it. Oh, yeah. Like, I think they bought the rights to whatever that documentary was, basically, to create this. You know... So if I was doing this now and had 30,000, I would be looking for like creative commons footage. And yeah, this is probably the level of what I could pull out of my ass, you know? Yeah. Given a week and 30,000. Yeah. Exactly. And and the instruction that I had to make a Yeti movie out of like some nature documentaries. <laughs> also, Good lead female character. I actually really liked Connie. She's, like, very forceful um, because, like, the guys are always trying to give up uh, throughout the thing. It's like, let's just go back. And she's like, no, I have to find my brother. So I, I, I quite liked her. The brother we never meet. No. <laughs> he gets fridged before we even meet him. Yeah, unclear whether Jim died of Yeti or died of experimental injections that don't work in high altitudes. <laughs> Let's rank this. Sure. We're good to rank this? We're agreed that this is horror? Yes. Okay. Connie ends the movie being like, oh god, why? Why any of this experience? God. <laughs> okay, cool. So I think that counts as, like, there are survivors. <laughs> yeah, because obviously it's definitely a monster movie. 
Um, it certainly has like adventure movie aspects to it. The scene where Steve and Varga are fist fighting near the end, like which was clearly shot like in Bronson Canyon. Yeah, they're, like, they're no longer on snow. They are literally on sand. Yeah, really has like some heavy original series Star Trek energy. <laughs> so I had a really hard time ranking this movie because as we mentioned in the opening, the two other Yeti movies have a lot of space between them. Yeah. And I kind of came down on, well, this is definitely better than Snow Creature. I think Jujin Yuki Otoko is better than this, though. Yeah. Um, which gave me a very big range, so it was very hard. So how I ended up finding somewhere in there to pinpoint is I looked for Roger Corman's first movie. Yeah. Um, you know, that seemed to be the fairest thing to directly compare this to, was like another first-time indie movie. Uh, so Monster from the Ocean Floor is at 133. Wasn't really sure if this was better or worse than that. They both have their own individual idiosyncrasies <laughs> that come from being cheap as fuck. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to give a bit of room for the idea that this might be better. So I looked immediately above Monster from the Ocean Floor where we've got some stuff that I would just sort of call mediocre. We've got like Jungle Woman and Mummy's Curse, which are both like late period universal monster movies from the like, this has gotten really tired and sad sort of era of universal monster movies. Above that is Face of Marble, which is awful and really only notable for just how... Wild. Yeah, how totally crazy its premise is. Above that is The Invisible Ray, which is definitely one of the lesser Karloff Lugosi team-ups, but I think just like on a craft level edges out this movie. So I made my ceiling uh, 129. Okay. Then looking below Monster from the Ocean Floor, it was like, okay, where do we bottom out? Where do we hit a point where it's like, no, Man Beast is definitely better than X, right? Because as you go down, there is some quality movies in here that are sort of low because maybe they just aren't really good horror movies like The Golem. So I kind of ended up dropping quite a ways because it's some of the stuff down here becomes really hard to compare. Um, but where I found my floor was 161, Mesa of Lost Women. Okay. Which is also like a first time indie, you know, made out of bits and scraps from someone else's movie kind of cheap bullshit and is way fucking worse than this movie. Like, I will watch Man Beast a million times before I watch Mesa of Lost Women again. I would agree. So, and not just because of spiders. Yes. <laughs> so that's sort of what became my floor, um, just because it was really hard for me to judge this movie against, like, three cases of murder or something, yeah. right? Uh, so 130 to 161 is my range here. Okay. So I also started out with a similar approach, but looking at Ed Wood. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Ed Wood's movie, his only movie on the list so far, is Bride of the Monster from 1955, which is at 125. Mm -hmm. So higher than your ceiling. And what I felt with Bride of the Monster, I, it's so tough because Ed is so focused on calling back to a bygone era, whereas Man Beast, it's not like it's looking ahead, but it's not really thinking about Universal, you know? Yeah, Man Beast is 
is being of the moment. So, so I wasn't really sure how to compare those two elements, but right below is the beast with a million eyes. Mm-hmm. And that movie, if you want to talk about people walking from A to B to C, <laughs> um, Man Beast does it better. Sure. Because at least the people are walking somewhere interesting. Yes. So my floor is 126. Oh, wow. Okay. So how high did the ceiling get? Not that far. So looking above, my eyes were drawn to our two Draculas here. 113, Dracula in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And 119, Spanish Dracula. Right. And the reason my eyes were drawn to Dracula is because of the blood purity thing. Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Which isn't as strong in these two Draculas as it is in, like, the Bela Lugosi or even the original novel. But um, that's kind of, you know, why I was drawn there. And, yeah, it's this area is just kind of a little tough. But what I knew is that, you know, Dracula in Istanbul, Spanish Dracula, they are riffing on something that has been done a few times by that point. Well, I guess... Guess not Spanish Dracula, but they're also riffing off of the footage of the English version. Whereas Man Beast is riffing off of headlines. So I was willing to give it a little bit more points, I guess, for originality in that mm. sense. Based on originality, I would not go above Supernatural at 108. Wow. Because we have not seen a movie like Supernatural since seeing Supernatural, you know? Sure. But even that, like... I know that that's, that's high, but I was like, okay, I know it's not going to go above this. So my range is 108 to 126. Now my floor and your ceiling are quite close. Yeah, I, I don't give this movie as many points in originality, partially because the entire story is write a script based around the footage you have from this documentary, and partially because like the ideas that feel a little new in this movie are really just saying the quiet part loud. Mm-hmm. Which is also funny, given that the actors were doing that too. <laughs> sure. Whereas, like, compared to Beast with a Million Eyes, while I understand your your point about covering the cheapness better, um, I think that on a script level, Beast with a Million Eyes is about more interesting things and has more interesting, like, ideas than Man Beast does. Then how do you feel... What was your ceiling again? 130. I I wasn't going to put it above Invisible Ray. Yeah. Honestly, I think that works. Because, again, thinking about originality, the way it approached things... We haven't seen another movie like The Invisible Ray. Sure. We also haven't seen a movie quite like The Face of Marvel. But that script (laughs) made no fucking sense. No. Uh, Invisible Ray made sense. It's revenge. So I'm okay with the idea of it below Invisible Ray, above Face of Marvel. Yeah, sort of serving as like a dividing line between the uninspired and the truly terrible. (laughs) Um, I guess. I think the toughest kind of movie to judge on the list are movies where it's bad, but you can detect a genuine desire on the part of the filmmakers to make something good because it feels kind of like punching down to rank it too low, but then it also feels unfair to people who are actually skilled at filmmaking to rank it too high, which makes these Ed Wood, Roger Corman, Jerry Warren movies hard to judge against, like, your mid-40s Universal stuff, where it's like, 
there's a much higher base level of competency, but no one making those movies cares, right? But, like, ultimately, I think this is the right spot. I don't, it's hard to describe, but you just feel like, yeah, this is right. Right. Right? Right. Right. So entering the list at the new number 130 is Man Beast from 1956, directed by Jerry Warren. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or chat with us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review. Otherwise, you can just suggest the show to your friends on social media. Like, hey, have you <laughs> ever heard of this movie, Man Beast? Because uh, it sounds pretty wild. I've been seeing a lot of people on Twitter talking about discovering the white reindeer uh, which great movie. like i had never heard of before we watched it ever so i've decided to like in my head take credit for like popularizing <laughs> it like no it's definitely because we did an episode on it that everyone's suddenly watching it that's what i've decided anyway um maybe it provided a bump to like the google analytics for like seo junk sure but regardless i think um you know if there's movies like that that you discover through this show uh certainly share the movies with people, but share the episode that goes with the movie too, you know? Um, if you have the means and would like to support us, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast where you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to exclusive bonus content, and we are, gosh, is it just one week away? Just one full week away. This time next week, I guess, will be our 150th week on Patreon. Um, we are hoping to hit our first goal of $150 a month by that week, which means we only have seven days to get $25 more. That's five patrons at $5, two and a half patrons at $10, or 25 whole $1 patrons um, to sign up. Once we reach that goal of $150 a month, we'll be doing um, bonus episodes on horror-adjacent movies. So if you're really lucky, maybe we'll watch The Wild World of Batwoman. That does sound wild. It's, it's very bad. It's very bad? It's no. very bad. Oh, I am very intrigued. That's patreon.com slash Podcast. Help us get there $25 away. And a big thank you to all current 24 patrons of the night uh, that have helped us get this far. Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we've got the finale to the Gilman trilogy. Oh! It's The Creature Walks Among Us from 1956 from Universal. I didn't know that there was another one. I thought it was just the creature and then the revenge. Nope. It's the third and final film in the trilogy, uh, and that's going to come up to you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!